0: So this is Psalm 34, verses 1 through 3, and I'm going to start just by reading them and talking about a couple of the words in there. It says, I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. My soul will boast in the Lord. Let the afflicted hear and rejoice. Glorify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. Those last two lines. Glorify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. Glorify and exalt. If you've read the Psalms, these are not unusual words. They're words that are reiterated and repeated all throughout the book of Psalms. There's 150 of them, and they constantly talk about this stuff. Glorify God. Now, you have to ask yourself a question. Why do the psalmists, the preeminent poets of the scriptures, and they extend all the way from Moses' lifetime to almost just before Christ came, okay? There's thousands of years of history. Well, a little over a thousand years of history recounted in the Psalms. And one of the major themes of this bit of poetry is, is glorify God. Why is it that that is such a theme across generations of different people who have worshiped this God? I have a theory. It's that we don't easily glorify God. My theory is that the psalmists are writing what they find in their heart is difficult for them to do. So when it says, please exalt God, sometimes it'll even say, bless the Lord, O my soul, as one psalm puts it. And the point there is, my soul doesn't want to. You know, when you wake up on the wrong side of the bed, you ever have that experience? That was not a rhetorical question. Uh, Come on, you wake up some morning and you're like, come on, why can't it be tomorrow already? You know, and you wake up and you go, why can't it just be different than it is? And the the point of that Psalm is that Psalmist wrote up, woke up just like you. And he said, bless the Lord, O my soul, because I don't feel like blessing the Lord. I got to talk to myself to get me to the place where I can praise God or do anything worthwhile at all. And so this Psalm says these words, glorify God and exalt him. Those two. Glorify God and exalt Him. <coughs> it's all August, which also means I'm struggling with my allergies. Just so you know, you're gonna—is my voice sounding raspy? It is in my ears. I'm already losing it, you know. Uh, but exalting God means something interesting. One translation of the Bible even puts it magnify Him. In fact, both of those words, glorify and magnify or exalt, both of those two words in Hebrew would have had to do with making God bigger. Now you can't actually make God bigger, right? I mean, he is as big as he's going to get, and nothing you or I can do can change that. But what we can do is put the focus on him to the point where he is the biggest thing in any room, where he is the largest thing we know of. He is the focus of our lives. He is the reason we do what we do. That, mean, that is what it means to exalt or magnify or glorify God. And frankly, this passage we're talking about today is all about glorifying God, so we're going to talk about that. C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite writers, guy died in the 1960s, he was an Oxford professor and was a really great thinker. He came to Christ later in his life and early on he was just this atheist slash agnostic slash, he followed different religions, but he never quite got to the place where he was interested in Christianity, which was really the religion he was grown up or surrounded by until he was in his mid years. And in those years, he started to really Come to this amazing relationship with God. Reading Lewis is just phenomenal. But And if you know anything about him, if you Google him later, you'll find he wrote just scads of books, loads and loads of books. Some of them are children's books. I love to read my kids' C.S. Lewis children's books. Some of them are theological treatises, and they're very difficult to read. And you can read for a day and think, oh, my goodness, I've got to reread that tomorrow to understand it. He's that sort of guy who writes that range of literature. But one thing he wrote that he never published. It was sitting on his desk when he died he never put it out in front of any publisher, was an essay that talked about this friend of his who came to visit. And he wrote this fictional account of one of the students who had become a friend of his who came to visit him. And he brought his fiance. And they were sitting in the room having tea when something interesting happens. And the conversation between he and his student are going back and forth. And the fiance is just kind of sitting there like the third wheel, not really understanding this whole Oxford culture. It's a academic environment and this this young girl uh, is just kind of sitting there off in left field not really paying attention and all of a sudden Lewis said his mind was transported and the room changed shape and the woman changed shape in fact she changed proportions and she went from being a normal English woman to being this gigantic thing like 25 feet tall and he said it was just grotesque, and he couldn't figure out what it was all about. Now, this is fictional, okay? Just so you know, my, when I tell stories like this, my kids say, did this really happen? They always ask that question. Did the fairy really come to, you know, bless us with the present? No, no, there's no fairies. You know, we talk about that. But here you've got to know, this is fictional. It's Lewis's imagination. But this woman grows to be the size of, she'd fill this room up. And he sits there next to her, and he says, why is she so big? And he's just looking, and it's like the student doesn't notice. And he doesn't notice that his fiance or girlfriend has gotten to this enormous size. And then it starts to occur to him through the conversation that what's happening is he's seeing her from her perspective. He's seeing this woman from her perspective. And then he starts to think, and he says, maybe we're all this big in our own minds, Our minds revolve around ourselves. We think about us. We think about ourselves before we think about anybody else. And the person we're magnifying is us. Whose needs are most important? Mine. When they're hungry, who needs to eat? Me. When we need to stop along at a restroom on the way to Michigan, you know, the kids cry out. And I say, well, can you wait 35 more miles, you know? And Shelby says, are you kidding me? But if I have to stop, we pull right over. You know what I'm saying? I mean, what is it about us that makes ourselves the most important thing in any room that we're in? But that's how we're built, right? And so when the psalmist says this line and he says, exalt the Lord, exalt his name together, what he's saying is make God big, and that is completely counterintuitive for you, and it's completely counterintuitive for me. I want to make me important. I want you to think I'm good. I want you to think I'm a blessed person and that you can like me because I'm a likable guy. And the fact is, if you knew everything about me, you'd find some things that are just downright unlikable. Georgianne, I saw your face when I said something about the rest area. I'm an unlikable guy when it comes to driving down the Pennant Turnpike. It's true. It's really true. So this morning, I want to talk to you about what happens in Jesus' life. The story that Owen read for you, Luke chapter 21, occurs on a Wednesday. And it's not just any Wednesday. It's a Wednesday in the middle of what is really the largest week in the history since God created the world. On, Monday, on Sunday of that week, the first day of the week, Jesus had entered Jerusalem and people were shouting Hosanna to God in the highest. On Monday, he came to the temple again. And this time, people shouted something else because he cleansed the temple and he started to wipe out all the money changers and let the doves go free. On Tuesday, he started a conversation and a debate with the religious leaders, and it didn't go real well, and his public opinion polls were probably starting to shrink. By Wednesday, things got worse. And besides the story that Owen read for you, something else happened on Wednesday. One of his 12 closest friends, Judas Iscariot, went to the religious leaders of ancient Israel, and they turned him in for 30 pieces of silver and conspired against him. One of Jesus' closest friends. The next day, Thursday, you know what happened. He had a meal with his disciples, and he was betrayed by Judas Iscariot with a kiss in the Garden of Gethsemane. The next day after that was truly horrible. He died. The next day after that, everybody sat around and said, well, it's over. The disciples cried. The religious leaders were excited. But everybody said, well, Jesus is gone, and we don't have to deal with him anymore. And then on Sunday, the most glorious day in all of history, it changed all over again, and Jesus rose from the dead, the first and only person to, be, to raise themselves by the power of God. He rose himself from the dead. Isn't that amazing? The power of the Spirit, the power of the Father God, and the power of the Son raising this one man, and our hope is rested in him. So on Wednesday, when this story takes place, we have to understand that it sits in the midst of all of these gigantic stuff. The debate that he was having with the Pharisees and Sadducees and religious leaders of his day, those were the people who were the power brokers of Jesus' time, and I always love to think about them because they're the people that constantly give false messages. As Jesus is every day going into the temple and teaching these people, nobody's hearing him, and the reason why is because the people who walk in already have agendas. They have gigantic egos, and they totally want to be the biggest person on the scene. The Pharisees ask one set of of questions that make Jesus look bad. And the Sadducees ask a whole nother set of questions. And then there's other people groups who ask different questions. But rarely in the stories of the Gospels, when you hear about the week of Jesus' death, do you hear any question that comes off as anything other than accusatory? Jesus is constantly on the defense and doing a magisterial job of debating them. But at the end of the day, the mission of God was not to just debate. The mission of God was to share this truth that God loves people and wants to save them, and Jesus had a very hard time getting that out. Why? Because people were big in their own eyes. They were large, like the girl in the story, like you and me. The people in the first century, when Jesus ended up in the temple teaching, they were people who exalted themselves. They were people who made themselves big. They were people who glorified themselves, and they thought of it religiously, and they worshiped, in theory, this God who is supposed to be ensconced within the center point of this temple, but in fact, they were worshiping themselves. So amidst all of these big egos and amidst all of these big events, and on the biggest week in Israel's yearly calendar, which this was, Jesus comes in and he does something very interesting. Now, if you have your Bibles or you can look on the wall behind me, look at Luke chapter 21 and look just at verse one for a brief moment, look at verse one. It says, Jesus looked up. You know, sometimes the smallest things in the Bible are really important. What Jesus sees when he looks up is completely different than what everybody else is saying. What would you have seen if you were in the temple when Jesus was teaching that day? You would have seen these massive power brokers. You would have seen people who had come from a long way off and had the well the the well healed status in society so they could get to Jerusalem and worship. What's more is you would have seen people coming by this offering checkpoint. This really happened. This is pretty cool. And I I actually called Tim, and he hasn't called me back about this, but I think we're going to implement it. In the temple, they had this box, and you'd go buy it, and you'd drop your money in it, and the person who was watching would shout out how much you put in the box. Now, is that intimidating or what? You know what I'm saying? I'm joking. Mel's one of our counters. We're never going to do this. That'd be a terrible idea. But you know, when we we put money in our offering plate, hopefully that's secret. You're the only one to know that, right? You don't want anybody else knowing it. I don't want to know how much you give. I never look at that stuff that's not important. What is important is why you give. So these people are coming in, and you can hear so-and-so gives 10 bucks. And the crowd kind of goes... Well, okay, I guess we're glad he's here. Another guy gives a hundred bucks. Oh, well, we're starting to warm up a little. A thousand bucks, yes, you know, and you can feel people look at him and the status in the crowd is dependent in part on what you gave. Eventually you get to 10,000. This temple's so big, people were giving equivalents of 100,000, I'm sure. The result of all of that is that you knew where you stood in Jewish society by how much money you gave. And so everybody's looking around, and you saw that person because they have influence, and you say, oh, that person just gave 10000 bucks to the temple. We feel great about him. He is somebody. Maybe I'll try to get a little closer over there. You know what I'm saying? Maybe we can drink from the same punch bowl. That was the kind of place this was. And Jesus looks up. Now notice what he sees. Jesus saw the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury, just like everybody else. That's what you would notice. And he also saw a poor widow put in two very small copper coins. I tell you the truth, he said, this poor widow has put in more than all the others. All of these people gave their gifts out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. So there's thousands of dollars going into this box. And there's all these people who are raising their status in Jewish society just by their gifts and the fact that they're so publicly acclaimed. And Jesus looks out and he sees a widow. And she gives this. They're even smaller than pennies. Two little copper coins, so insignificant they probably couldn't buy enough stuff to sacrifice, to follow the normal everyday procedures of the temple. She didn't have enough money to worship God. That's what this story is. She didn't have what it took to even do her duty by the temple. And yet Jesus says these two pennies are worth more than the guy in front of her who dropped thousands of dollars in the offering plate. And she is no less, in fact, she's greater because she's given from her heart. And deep within her, she is using these two pennies and what God wants most. The currency that God speaks and understands is exaltation. The currency that he understands is glorification. And this woman glorifies him. And she has the humility to do it in public when she knows that these two pennies are going to get shouted out. After $10,000, dollars two cents. You know, when I read this story, it transported me back to about third grade when I had this cousin who we lived about two hours apart and he was my best friend at the time. And he would always uh, come up with these one-liners from his school and then use them on me when I saw them, okay? So every Christmas he would always say this stuff and he, he looked at me and he's like, you don't look too good today. You look like two cents waiting for change. That was one of his one-liners. I still remember it. It wasn't very nice, was it? But two cents is nothing. It's a one-liner. It's an insult. And yet Jesus says this woman gave it, and it's what she had, and she had no more, and it was from a heart of exaltation and glory. She wanted God to get the glory, and God understands that. That's the language God speaks. That's the language God loves. So we have a very large set of people, and we have one tiny, small one. And Jesus looks up, and who do his eyes get attracted to? That one small widow. And all of those large people, as far as their status and probably as far as how they looked at themselves, they were all ranging about doing their thing, and Jesus fixates on this woman. Now, watch what happens next, okay? I always want to think if I went back 2,000 years ago, I would be different than the people who were there. And I'm never confident I would be. Now, the preeminent place to look for me is the disciples, because watch what they bounce off of this moment and say, look at this. They say some of the disciples were remarking about how the temple was adorned with beautiful stones and with gifts dedicated to God. So Jesus says, wow, these are the two most beautiful pennies that Jesus has ever seen because they are absolutely given from a heart of glory and exaltation of God. And the disciples' first reaction is to look around them at this thing that's on the screen and go, wow, look at those stones, and look at the rocks, and look at the the, the furniture, and look at all this stuff. That is magnificent. Do you think they got it? Isn't that sad? Jesus pulls out of this society the one person who no one would notice and exalts her for exalting him. And then these guys decide that the coolest thing they can talk about is the big stuff, which he's exactly making a point, don't notice. That's the stuff not to worry about. Notice the two pennies, notice the heart. God looks inside, not outside. You guys are focused on all the wrong stuff. And Jesus starts what is the second most famous sermon in the Gospels, and he launches into what is a scathing story for the future of these people and the future of us possibly as well. What happens next is he deconstructs the disciples' mindset to the point, I suspect, they just sat there like amoebas. You know, the spines were just completely gone. And he says this line, he says, listen, look at these stones. Look at those rocks that build the temple. Honestly, they will be gone. And not one will even be on top of the other. God is so disinterested in the worship that takes place on this place because it's not about exaltation and it's not about glory that he will let this thing be completely destroyed. You know how long that took to happen? Roughly 40 years after Christ left the planet. It didn't last long. Let me give you a little bit of a story about this temple because it'll help us to understand. But when they're looking at these rocks, let me tell you that when Herod the Great decided to build this temple, he didn't think the hill was big enough, okay? The hill was too small to support the structure, so he had to make a bigger hill. Does that sound kind of crazy? He had to take these rocks from the field next door to Jerusalem and he cut them out of the solid stone. And the biggest of, of those rocks that we found is 45 feet long, 16 feet wide, and 11 feet tall. It weighed 600 tons. And scientists today are kind of questioning how in the world they got it from one spot to another with the cranes they had in that day. They know that one crane couldn't have handled it. They had to use multiple cranes. Isn't that amazing? 600 tons. When you're talking about the rocks on which this temple was built, it was built out of these massive gigantic stones that built the hillside to the point where that they could actually have this big a temple in it. The wall that's closest to us in this picture is 150 feet tall. And from the top of that to the bottom of the valley below it is 225 feet. That is massive, right? If you, if you took, this is true, all right? If you took the Wachovia Center, Lincoln Financial Field, and Citizens Bank Park, the place where the Eagles, the Phillies, and the Sixers play, and you took every seat and they were filled, you could fit every person from all three parks in this structure at the same time. That's huge, right? And Jesus sits there and he says, listen, I will destroy this thing. I will take it apart because the exaltation of God, the glory of God is the preeminent goal of the human race. We are not okay with God. We are not okay as human beings. We are not even doing what we are called to do until we get to the place where we glorify God. And he says, two pennies are more valuable than this whole temple. He starts by saying that, and he says, I'll take this temple apart. But he goes on. He says, before all this, they will lay hands on you and persecute you. And he talks about the destruction of their society. What actually ended up occurring is about 40 years after Christ left the planet, there was this moment when Titus, the Roman general, came in and burned this whole temple to the ground. It was completely gone by 70 A.D. You know, when Herod decided to build this, it was about 20 B.C., And in Jesus' lifetime, the the Pharisees and Sadducees say it took 46 years so far to build, and it's still in construction when Christ is walking around the planet. And when he leaves, it's still in construction and it goes on. Some people say it it might never have gotten done, or it might have gotten done within 10 years of its destruction. The construction of this building took that long to make. Can you imagine? Well over half a century was put into building this, and it was destroyed in a year. All at once, it was over. And so when Jesus says this stuff, he says, listen, you think this is a great moment and you think this is the center of your worship lives and this is the place where you're going to experience God. But let me tell you that what happens in the heart of one small widow is a bigger deal to God than what happens in this gigantic structure that you've spent all of this time and money building and that God will let be destroyed in just a few days. It will just go away when that Roman general comes in. Because God is more worried about glory and exaltation than he is all this other stuff. He goes on to say, When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, you will know that its desolation is near. That's verse 20. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those in the city get out and let those in the country not enter the city. And he says the destruction of Jerusalem will come. He goes on, he gives even a worse sign. It gets worse. There will be signs in the sun, moon, and stars. On the earth, nations will be in anguish and perplexity at the roaring and tossing of the sea. The destruction will go beyond just this city and beyond just this country to the whole planet. Let's stop for a second and think about this. God is so concerned with God's glory, and he's so convinced the best thing for you and for me is to be concerned with his glory, that this place that we're living in, that we love, that we think is so great, which is very meaningful to God, means nothing in comparison to us becoming people who are redeemed enough to love him for who he is. That's a very interesting thought, wouldn't you say? The temple didn't mean that much to God. The Jerusalem city, the nation of Israel, the world in which we live, none of them mean nearly as much as that human beings have a right relationship with God. This is the first place where you start to realize the priority list of God is very, very singular. It starts with one thing. Is he in the right spot in our lives? Does our world revolve around him? Let me keep reading and just give you one more piece of thought in connection with this. When these things begin to take place, this is verse 28, stand up and lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Jesus says these things to the disciples, and he says, we're supposed to become worshipers of God in this temple that you admire so much, that's so amazing, and that's so great. Let me tell you, it's nothing compared to a heart of worship, nothing compared to people who are actually dedicated to God. And as you start to watch things be destroyed, as you start to watch the deconstruction of the stuff you value so much, let me tell you that you should like it. I can only imagine that the disciples sat there and said, really? Why would we enjoy this experience? Why would we somehow think this is fun to watch the people in the world in which we live go downhill? And at the end of it, he says, because your redemption is drawing near. As soon as I pointed to it, Chris, just flip the slide. I love it. Sorry, Chris, that's not your fault. Because your redemption is drawing near. What does redemption look like? This is the final thought. But I want to ask you for a, qu- qu- uh, a quick moment. You know, we live in a day when the love of God is just huge. We hear about it all the time, right? God is love. One of my favorite thinkers talks about this and he says, God is love. John 1, 8, 1 John 1 8 tells us that, but love is not God. Sometimes in our minds, we think that this God who is represented in this passage of scripture, he can't possibly be God. I mean, this isn't God. How could this God be loving? And that's because we ask the question the wrong way. When we want to figure out what love is, we go to God, and we study God, and we come to understand God, and we read the passages that tell us about God, and we read about his passion for us, and we read about the fact that his greatest desire is that people on this planet would love him and worship him and make him who he's designed to be in our lives, the place where he's supposed to hold in our lives. That is his preeminent goal. But that doesn't mean that God is love is the same thing as love as we define it as God. We easily take it and say, well, the thing that is nice, the thing that is good, the thing that is easy, those things must be God. This story is a story of not ease, not good, not fun, because the final point is your redemption looks like you getting in love with this God finally forever. The ultimate goal of this God is that we know him, that we exalt him, and that unlike the woman in C.S. Lewis story, the world revolves around them. When I was a little kid, I developed this way of picking on my sisters. I picked on both my sisters when I was little. I've stopped picking on one of them since then, which is actually true. And, and my one sister who I still pick on, I can still do this with, and, and that's at the dinner table when he, she would be saying some story, I would hold up my hand like this, and I would, like, this is, this is my sister, and I would say, the world revolves around you. That's what I would say. And she would just, you know, laugh. And she still thinks it's the funniest thing. She's married now, has a kid, and she, her husband thinks it's great that I do it. In fact, I think he likes it more than she does. The world revolves around us, right? The story of Luke 21 tells us that the world does not revolve around us. In fact, our redemption looks like every day getting less and less like the person who the world revolves around them. Instead, our world starts to revolve around God we start to think, what is God like? What does God love? What does God want? Because in so doing, God's plan is worked out on this planet and things do go better. But until he becomes the preeminent thing in our life, the, the person we most worship, glory, love, the person we are most attached to, until that happens, everything else doesn't fit. And redemption looks like us moving towards God. And when he has to destroy things along the way to getting that done, he does it. And the story of Luke 21 is that God is so impassioned for your heart that there are buildings and cities and whole countries that he is willing to topple over in order to get to the people inside them, the individual people who he cares so much about, that he loves so deeply, who need to have a relationship with his son. That is both the most frightening God I can think of and the most loving God. Let me ask you a question. For those of you who are married, don't tell me if this is anywhere close to home. I don't want to hear any reactions. But let's theorize that you cheat on your spouse. Let's just theorize that you've had a bad night, something happened that went wrong, you got intoxicated or something occurred, and you and myself, we all just hypothesize that we left that person and we went with somebody else for one evening and then we came home and then we talked to them and we had to admit it. And we sit there in the living room and you're sitting there across the couch from your spouse and you say, listen, this has never happened before and I promise it will never happen again. The tears are streaming down your face and you say, I will never do this again. I promise. I'm so sorry. I don't know how it happened. It was a terrible mistake. It's sin. It's wrong. It's failure. I have sinned against God and against you. And they look at you and they say, you know what? That's no big deal. Let's get cake and ice cream. You know, I just feel like we need some dessert right now. We're okay. How would you feel about your spouse at that point? You wouldn't feel good, would you? Because any spouse who loves their mate would absolutely be incensed. There may be a healing process that you can walk through. That marriage may make it. I hope it does. But the fact of the matter is, when we have those sorts of betrayals in our lives, if we love that person at all, what happens within us is just an absolute tortured experience. And when we look at God and we act like we can have all of these other priorities in front of him and we think it's okay that we put him in this role where he just kind of blesses our life with help when we need it, that he's there to call upon when we have a problem, when we look at him that way and we act like he's not jealous and we act like he's not impassioned and we act like redemption doesn't look like us being transformed into people who put him more in the preeminent place of our lives, if we somehow think he's a less wild God than he is, we have truly made a mistake. We can easily think that God doesn't love us as much as he does because his love looks nice and kind and schmarmy, like a gigantic marshmallow, but it's actually fierce and fiery and a little bit scary. This God loves you to the point where he would hurt all sorts of things. He would even hurt you to get at your heart, to get at the interior part of your life and say, you are mine and I love you and I want to know you. That is love. Jealousy is one of the words that the Bible uses to describe this God over and over again. He is a jealous God because he is a God who actually loves. Who's big in your life? Are you the biggest thing in your life? Are your kids the biggest thing in your life? Is your job the biggest thing in your life? Getting that new car, that new house, moving up in society, how people look at you, what's the biggest thing? Is it God and what he thinks, or is it all this other stuff that we put in the way? And do you somehow easily make the mistake of thinking that he's just going to walk by all that and go, I'm not jealous, I'm not angry, I'm not at all hurt by the fact that you have all this other stuff? Do you think that's our God? Because when the Bible says that God is love, what it means is he is jealous and passionate and deeply relational and very interested in you, but absolutely frightening all at the same time. Who's the biggest thing in your life? Join me in prayer.